It's Behind the Headlines on WLIWFM. This is our weekly show where we bring together a roundtable of award-winning local journalists to talk about the week's news, do a little bit of a deeper dive into the headlines. I'm flying solo this week. I'm your host, Joe Shaw, from the Express News Group. I'm the executive editor. We publish the uh, Southampton Press, the East Hampton Press, the Sag Harbor Express, and the website 27east.com. My co-host Bill Sutton's on vacation this week. I'm going to return the favor, by the way, next week. Uh, Bill will be here uh, and uh, without me. So with us today, uh, three terrific journalists. We have Steve Wick, who's the executive editor of the Times Review Media Group. Hey, Steve. Good morning. We have Denise Civiletti, who is the editor of Riverhead Local. Good morning, Denise. Good morning. And we have Carissa Katz, who is the managing editor of the East Hampton Star. Hey, Carissa. Hey, Joe. Nice to be here. We got a bunch of stuff to talk about. We want to talk about uh, the the maps that were thrown out, uh, the the redistricting maps that were thrown out by the courts this week. Uh, A lot of stuff going on, including a big proposal on Sound Avenue up in Riverhead. Uh, But I want to start uh, talking, uh, Carissa, about a story you guys had about a project that's near and dear uh, to, the, to the star because publisher David Rattray is involved. Uh, it's called the Plain Sight Project. And, and I know that uh, it's just been an amazing project and it got a big boost in funding this week. Yeah, so um, the Plain Sight Project, the main goal of it is to research uh, enslaved, the names of enslaved people and sort of bring the history to life, that um, history into the light, I should say that uh, Long was not recognized doing that through looking at town records and and um, going back and just pouring over records and finding they found that a lot of the information that had never been part of history is actually sort of hidden there in plain sight, hence the name. And they found out uh, at the end of March that a grant that the Sag Harbor Cinema had led the charge on um, a a federal grant was approved. So they got $200,000 in a federal grant for Sag Harbor Cinema and the Plain Sight Project together to continue this work and amplify it, um, spread the word about it. And so it's a really, it's a great thing. David Rattray and Don Marie Barnes are the co-directors of the Plain Sight Project. And so at the Star, we've really watched this start from, I think, David's inquiry into one person's name on a gravestone in East Hampton town, trying to figure out who that person was and eventually finding information about that person to what it is now, where now they've you know found hundreds of, if not over a thousand names of people who enslaved people who had been here and really sort of been able to begin to tell that part of the story of our history. I think I think it's just wonderful news, Joe. Um, I was we were also impressed with David's project over here that uh, a year or so ago we started something called the North Fork Project, and there's four of us involved in it: uh, myself and three really wonderful researchers, uh, Jackie Dinan, um, Sandy Brewster Walker, um, Amy Folk, the Southold town historian, and Richard Wines. And we're doing the same thing. We're trying to pull out those names and we're up to hundreds and hundreds of names. Um, we have a, a good sense of numbers in terms of in the 17th century, how many slaves were here, how many enslaved people were working here, what they did. And we're really making uh, an enormous progress because as David found out, this was an area that just wasn't part of town history, uh, the focus of town history anywhere on the East End. Uh, history over here is sort of pretended like it began in 1640 when the English arrived. In fact, there were large native communities here and um, slavery began within 20 years or so um, of the English arriving here on the North Fork. And now we're going to tell that story. So David's project that that getting that kind of a boost is it just it speaks volumes to telling a more complete story about the history of the East End. Carissa, can you talk a little bit again about the the how this got started? You said David basically it started with one one tombstone. Uh, can you explain that? What what was the the nexus of this? Sure, um, and it may be that he had this had been germinating for him before that. But I remember him looking into um, the story behind a 
gravestone that said simply Ned um, in East Hampton Town. And the question was, well, who was Ned? And and obviously at that a gravestone from that period of time, if somebody didn't have a last name, you could assume that they were an enslaved person because they would have been otherwise given a last name. And so as he looked into that, he found the records that substantiated who Ned was and told us more about him. And that, you know, what you find as a journalist often and probably as a, as a historian is that when you, if you can't find the answer to the question you're asking, and you look a little bit deeper, it may be that somebody just didn't think to ask that question before. So really it was kind of asking the questions of the historical record and starting to look more carefully and, and to tease out where, where you could find the names of enslaved people and how you could then build upon what may only be a first name or may only be somebody referred to as Mr. Gardner's boy um, and an age and give that person that sort of give them back their personhood in a way, um, which is one of the things that I find so interesting about that project. And I think historically it's, you know, it's, it's really moving to think about that um, sort of allowing a reclamation of, of identity for for people that had only been perhaps numbers or not even recognized, not even, only only seen as property. Yeah, not even numbers. I mean, hardly even names. And uh, Richard's been going through uh, surrogate court records, looking at old family wills to see what happened to this, to an enslaved person who was owned by a particular family and then was given to someone after that person died. Um, there are still prominent families on the North Fork that have roots back into slavery. Um, the Wickhams had slaves here up up into the eight, early 1800s, but I was recently doing some research on a Wickham line in Virginia. There was a John Wickham born in Kutchog who went to William and Mary for law school and ended up staying in Virginia and ended up owning about 200 slaves in Virginia um, and had a 3,000 acre plantation there. So it's, it's a bigger world than I think anyone um, thought was out here. And I, I, I'd like to try to figure out the economic impact of, you know, slavery that goes, let's say, on the North Fork from about the 1650s up into 1827. What did it build? What did it mean for the foundation of our economy out here? But more than that, as you say, Carissa, it's to bring names out, to put humanity to people, to give someone his personhood back. And to know who Ned was, or in, I'm looking into a slave over here named Limus Reeve, who had a cabin somewhere on the Wickham farm. Who was he? What became of him? What became of his children? This is an effort that it's long overdue. And I really, really congratulate uh, David for starting this, inspiring us to do it over here. And we'll just see where this thing goes. We've had some resistance from people here, like, why do you care about this? What does it matter? It's all it's long gone. Um, but we can push back all that uh, political nonsense and just do the research. Yeah, and I think historically, and as journalists, it's always, it's interesting to have the full story or to find a way to get at the full story. And so that's, to me, that's value in itself. Um, Absolutely. Because that is, you know, and that's really how America was built on the backs of enslaved peoples and the other, you know, people who were also doing the hard work here, but, but to, to not recognize that is to not recognize an important part of the, the building of, of this country. I, I wanted to mention that the Plain Sight Project had a, a wonderful exhibit at the East Hampton Library recently, and I think really did a, a, a great job of doing exactly what you say, which is, you know, giving back uh, people their personhood, that, that showing faces and talking about who people were, which, you know, the the uh, dehumanization uh, that comes with slavery is, is the worst part of it. So I think it really affects it. But taking a step back for a second, I'd, I'd ask both of you. I think it's a fair statement that most people, before these conversations were started by David and, and through his project and, and now uh, what you guys are doing up on the North Fork, I don't think the vast majority of residents realized that slavery was part of what happened on the East End uh, in its early days. Is, is that a fair statement? Yeah. I don't, I, 
most people knew that. It, it's certainly true on the North Fork, Joe. What, what we discovered sort of from the beginning of the research and stuff I had done even before the group was formed, there was this kind of sense that slavery here was very small in terms of numbers, which I, I think to some people means it was somehow benign or somehow not like Southern slavery. Um, recently in reading the bi- a book about a biography of, of Frederick Douglass, you see how um, incredibly ugly it was in his early years in just that one family. There's no reason to think it wasn't just as ugly here. But the prevailing wisdom here until we got started was it was really small. It was therefore insignificant. So why do we need to do anything about it? And then there was, uh, I hate to use the phrase white supremacy, but there was this notion that when the white people came, that's when all the good stuff started and the history began and all the great things that happened happened then. But there now we're real now we are fully seeing uh, the extent of it, the generations long history of it, and who they were and what they did here. This is this is really really a milestone. I would I I think it's fantastic the work that you've done with this and I congratulate you both uh, on on that um, on both projects. I, and I just think that. We also need to be mindful that um, as people writing uh, the first draft of history, as they say, um, you know, of the exploitation of people of color um, by in, in the farming economy here did not end with slavery by any means. Uh, you know, I mean, there was the, the migrant workers who, uh, you know, came went back and forth to work here. Uh, People living as you know, Steve. I know you've written about on uh, on, on uh, migrant housing in, in the area. I mean, it, it's been the backbone of that economy, and um, that's a sad fact. And it continues today, I, I believe, with um, the people who come here from uh, Central America and do the work that um, the migrant workers who, who came here from the South every year uh, used to do, and prior to them, uh, the enslaved persons. Um, and so, you know, I, I think it's important to be mindful of that and going forward to, yeah. you know, try to write that story as well. Yeah, um, I, I think know. it's, um, Denise, it's impossible to look at the economy just here, whether it's dishwashers, people doing landscaping work, uh, it's impossible to look at the economy of the North Fork and not see uh, migrant workers doing an immense amount of work and contributing to this economy. It's um, it's heartbreaking to think that people don't recognize this and are, and are nasty about it. This conversation has such echoes on a national level too, because it seems like every effort to take a closer look at the role that slavery and uh, that race played in the way the country developed uh, meets with some hostility and, and, it, and it's you know in some in some states there's this there's a conversation about it's making kids in school for instance uncomfortable to have that conversation but this is a conversation that's necessary to have I mean we we need to talk about it. I mean it, it, the economy of the East End um, in the 1800s and before uh, very clearly, um, slavery was had a role in that, and we need to acknowledge that. And we need to we need to, to you know the very fact that it's not common knowledge. I think is something that demonstrates that we haven't looked at it closely enough. So yeah, you're absolutely right that their echoes are on the national level. Just look at the silly or whatever you want what word you want to use about critical race theory, and you can't teach things that upset people or something. No one's trying to upset anyone. We're just trying to tell a more complete story, and that's where I think David really gets a pat on the back. That's great. Uh, Carissa, what's the Sag Harbor Cinema's role uh, in in this? The Sag Harbor Cinema had hosted a, a program last summer with the Plain Sight Project, and that sparked this partnership into um, looking together at, at some of these issues. And the Sag Harbor Cinema led the charge on applying for this federal grant. So really, I think David credits the cinema for for pursuing it and and making it happen and and then the grant will just allow them to do so much more and um, focus the attention so much more. Just 
hats off to, to David and Don Marie Barnes for, for the project that they're doing and Steve, what you guys are doing on the North floor. I got to say though, too, it's, it's, it's worth a shout out to the arts community locally. Um, I just had lunch yesterday with, with someone from the arts community and the entire conversation we had was about some projects that we can do about bringing more awareness of, of certain issues. We have a really engaged arts community locally that takes its social responsibility uh, very seriously. And uh, I just think that's a, you know, th that's how you come up. That's how you have the plot to go get a $200,000 grant to advance this work. And that's going to do, I mean, I think uh, David and Don Marie have been really working on sort of, you know, a shoestring budget up till now. So I, I think the fact that they're going to have a little bit of money to expand this effort, yeah. just good news all the way around. Uh, one of the, one of the areas, Joe, that really requires some absolutely new research, and maybe the grant can help David and Donna Marie with that, is the roots of the Sylvester slave trade in the Caribbean, where uh, the Sylvester family for years had very large plantations uh, doing, doing sugarcane. And that, that region of slavery was incredibly wicked. I mean, the death toll on those islands was horrific. And the thinking is, is that the slaves that came to Shelter Island came from the Caribbean and then probably were sold to North Fork families from there. Um, because we are seeing in our research some names that suggest uh, that, that it was Africa to the Caribbean to Shelter Island and then spread around. Um, but I think now uh, they'll be able to start engaging in research and historians on those islands to understand where the Sylvester's own land, how much land they own, how many slaves that they have there. Again, all new stuff. Yeah, for listeners who might not be aware, Donna Marie's other role is that she is an, a curator and archivist at the Sylvester Manor Educational Farm on Shelter Island. So she is also involved in, in looking into things like that at Sylvester Manor's role in the slave trade. Um, so just to give people a little bit of background on her who might not be aware. I also want to mention, Steve, that, that that worked both ways. I've had conversations with tribe members and with uh, John Strong, who's a, a longtime historian of the Shinnecock Nation. And apparently early colonists um, had sold some members of the Shinnecock Nation into slavery in the West Indies uh, over. It was basically indentured servitude, but it was it amounted to slavery, too. So. Oh, yeah. This is these are things that that I, I just I'm not sure uh, are part of the uh, of the historical record of, no. of how our region evolved. So this no, is we have we have some some reporting on a, a slave from the North Fork who was sold to the Canary Islands and somehow made her it was a woman somehow made her way back uh, and bought her freedom. I mean, again, these are stories that if you just looked at that one story, Joe, you would think, oh, my God, a slave from here sold to somebody who takes her to the Canary Islands, somehow this, this young woman goes to an ambassador on the Canary Islands and says, this is what's happened to me. She gets freed and returns to the to apparently to Long Island. Again, these are stories that have never been told and are now going to be told. Amazing they've never been told. Carissa, the, the, the men and women who were caught up in the slavery on the East End, were they from Africa? Were they from the West Indies? Were they members of the Shinnecock Nation or was it all of the above? I can't actually speak to that because I haven't delved as deeply into the research as David has. Um, but I think it was, I, my guess is that it was all of the above. Yeah. Given there were definitely natives, uh, Joe, who were enslaved, okay. uh, which makes their condition and their treatment here once the Europeans arrived in, in roughly 1640, an even an even far worse story than we've been told. Mm. Not just that you lost your land, you lost your culture, you lost your language, um, you lost your a place to live, where you would live for thousands of years. But then some of them turned were turned into slaves and indentured servants. Makes me think of Shane Weeks's new book, uh, "Good Neighbors," which is a history of the Shinnecock pulled from. Uh, the Shinnecock perspective, and I think the title is meant to be sort of a wry joke that um, the Shinnecock Nation learned that they had to be good neighbors because uh, they basically uh, were under threat all of the time by by the people around them. So 
interesting stuff. Uh, just one one last time, hats off to to David and to Donna Marie and to to what you guys are doing. I think it's important work. This is behind the headlines on WLIWFM. I'm Joe Shaw. I'm the executive editor of the Express News Group. My guests today are Steve Wick of the Times Review Media Group, Denise Civiletti of Riverhead Local, and Carissa Katz of the East Hampton Star. And so, Denise, I want to turn to um, what is fairly big news that came at the end of this week, and that is that state courts have thrown out uh, the redistricting maps that were uh, in place for a little while, uh, looking looking like they were going to be the maps that we were going to use for this year's election. This has big resonance uh, in our region because the first and second districts are being redrawn uh, pretty drastically. Uh, what's can you? Briefly, just sort of give us a rundown of where this stands uh, at the local level. I'm, I'm sorry, at the legal, you know, legally, what are, what's the situation now with the maps? So uh, yesterday, late afternoon, a judge, a state Supreme Court judge in Steuben County upstate um, uh, ruled that the uh, process by which the new maps were drawn was unconstitutional, didn't comply, will comport with the 2014 constitutional amendment requiring maps to be drawn by uh, an independent redistricting committee. And um, the committee as, pardon me? That was Thursday, I just did. Um, that, oh, Thursday, that, yes, I uh, thank you, sorry about that. Um, so thir thir late Thursday afternoon. And um, it, the, the 2014 constitutional amendment required that this independent redistricting committee um, present, you know, draw the maps. And the committee could not uh, agree on maps. I mean, there were Democratic maps, there were Republican maps, never the twain shall meet, of course, because that's the age we live in, I guess, and it's politics. And uh, so then the state legislature, um, under color of law by a, a, a 2014, um, a 2021, sorry, law that was enacted, um, it, Pass maps of its own. And of course, the, the state legislature and the governor are controlled by Democrats. The governor's a Democrat. So they said, okay, we're going to do this on our own. Uh, the state last year had passed this law allowing them to do that. And this judge said, you know, they were not, they could not do that because that law itself, which was signed, into, uh, signed by the governor last December, in December of 2021. Uh, was itself unconstitutional because the the people had just in fact rejected a constitutional amendment to allow that to happen. So no dice. Um, he he said these maps were void and unusable, and he has given um, by under under another provision of the state constitution, the legislature now has to. <laughs> That's kind of ironic, has to draw the maps. And um, this judge says, and they, they better be, they better have bipartisan support. And if they don't, if they're not bipartisan maps, then uh, I, the judge, I'm gonna appoint an independent expert who's gonna draw these maps for the state at the state's expense. Um, so if, if, this, if this decision stands, sorry, I was just going to say this has to happen fast, right? It's got to happen fast. He gave them, I think, till April 11th to submit uh, new maps. And and if this decision stands, then um, you know it, it looks like this, the primary is not going to be held in June as as scheduled, uh, the party primaries. And uh, but but there's a big if there because you know the state, the governor, and the state attorney general have both immediately said we're going to appeal and. I think uh, as a matter of law, if they file a, a notice of appeal, this judge's decision is stayed, so it doesn't have any legal effect. And um, depending on the length of the stay and what happens in the appellate court, uh, this could all be moot, you know, wow. so. Stuff. Yeah. Steve, Steve I've, I've felt all along that this, the process that was set up, there, there was an <clears throat> And Denise mentioned it, I think you said in 2014, there was legislation passed at the state level to make the redistricting process, which happens, you know, every 10 years, you have to you have to redraw those lines to try and really find a bipartisan way to do that, to take to try and take the politics out of it as much as possible. But the way they set it up, the, my understanding is folks in Albany have said that essentially the bipartisan commission just played four corner offense, stalled 
said they couldn't come up with something because they knew that it would be kicked to the state legislature, which was dominated by uh, Democrats, and, and they were the fallback to, to make the decisions. And so this bipartisan commission was sort of hamstrung by that process. I think the process was just flawed from the beginning, and this is just the obvious outcome. Yeah, the critics of this say exactly that, Joe, that this that the bipartisan commission did not do its job, that uh, it was kind of hijacked and that while well, both parties do this, in this case, the Democrats did it and that the, the process ended up being completely one sided. I remember talking to Palumbo, Anthony Palumbo, our, our state senator over here, talking about it. And yes, he has a point of view. He's a Republican. He doesn't like the Democratic legislature. But the points he made for the story we wrote a while ago were, were very on point, that th this process was just flawed, badly flawed. And now, as Denise points out, the judge has looked at it and said the same thing. I think the real question is, this: it, does it get stayed and it just stay, it's, it's all moot? What about the primary in June? Where do we go from here? Or does the whole thing get tossed and therefore the primary is up in question? I, I think there's a lot of questions remaining. It feels to me like it's just going to stay the way it is um, as this thing winds through the courts. Which I'm sure there's going to be a bitter battle. Of, uh, in all I mean, you know, if it stays the way it is now, because part of the point was that that the situation has changed with the, the latest census. So those maps are outdated as well. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I don't they know can't how use the back. current maps. Yeah. yeah I don't know how you go back to the first district the way the first district was before. I don't know how you do that. Well, I mean, according to uh, Judge McAllister in Steuben County, the, the 2012 maps, which were adopted after the 2010 uh, census, are invalid because they're mal malapportioned now because you know we have 26 congressional districts we had 27 right in new york so uh that, that can't work and you know the, it, this has real ramifications potentially for the first congressional district because the um the maps that were enacted and signed into law in february um favored the democrats in this district uh, this district has been a swing district in the past it has favored recently Republicans. And with the redrawn boundaries, the first congressional district uh, slanted to Democrats in terms of enrollment and how they voted and how people voted in the 2020 election. So um, this could be, uh, you know, if if this judge's rationale is upheld and if, if, if an appellate court acts on it and upholds his rationale, his decision, then um, this could have you know, significant consequences for the Democratic candidates in the first congressional district, I would say. Absolutely. It affects the region. It's certainly, it's interesting that the court case is about upstate, but um, the, the way these, these maps are being redrawn affects this region probably as significantly as anywhere. Carissa, I, you know, I'm curious, I've always been sort of intrigued by this idea of the gerrymandering that takes place. And, and we see it at all the different states. And as Steve said, both parties do it. Um, it's almost like a game of chicken. Both parties talk about ending the, the idea of gerrymandering. But in each case, when the party gets power, it doesn't seem willing to be the first one to blink. You know, neither party mm -hmm. wants to, if you've got, well, we'll do it next time. Uh, but for now, we have the power and we're going to draw the, the lines this way. It's it's just uh, there, there doesn't seem to be everybody agrees it's bad, but nobody seems to want to, to address it. It's true. And I, as I recall, this happened in North Carolina when they redrew their district maps some couple of years back and they were also ruled to be unconstitutional. Um, so it's you know, it seems that whatever party is in power obviously is going to try to shift the districts so that they favor their party. And that's the whole point of trying to have an independent redistricting commission that sort of failed in New York state um, because yeah, nobody, nobody wants to be the one who, you know, the legislator who, who says, you know, I, I went against my party, fair yeah. or not fair. The party politics are still too strong. We should probably, before we leave the topic, we should talk a little bit about Lee Zeldin, who's the current uh, first district representative and a candidate 
uh, the Republican candidate for governor in New York State. Um, Steve, his campaign has been getting some traction. He really does seem to uh, he is he is continuing the the close connection to Donald Trump. Um, And even as Donald Trump, there's a lot of bad headlines coming out um, on a fairly regular basis surrounding uh, the Trump world. But uh, I don't think Lee Zeldin is, is looking to separate himself. It's a great puzzle, and, and we've been thinking a lot about it in, in the newsroom, and I've been thinking a lot about it because I don't understand um, how he moves forward in a campaign to be the governor of a very blue state while maintaining um, an extremely close relationship with the former president. Now, I, I read his press releases every day when they come out. I haven't seen him or read him mentioning Trump, but the, the the news in recent days and in recent weeks on the former president is so dark that I don't see how this doesn't wash up on Lee Zeldin's doorstep. And um, and yet clearly it's not an issue to him. Um, he seems to be still willing to wrap himself around the former president. We know that on January 6th, uh, even after the riot, even after the coup attempt, that Lee Zeldin voted to disqualify the Electoral College in two states. I don't know how you defend that today, knowing what we all know about what happened on January 6th, particularly all the arrests and some convictions. I don't know how you defend that. And yet- but Steve, I think that, like, defend that to, like, consider the audience. You know what I mean? Like, yes, to Democrats, you know, uh, like to you, to me, to, to people on this call, maybe to people, listening to this. Um, yeah. How do you defend that? But we're not, that's not who he's playing to with this, with this game plan. You know, but he's trying to be the not, governor of New York. So how does it help him? He's got to get elected without people like you and the people who might be listening to this voting for him. Clearly. I mean, there's such a divide in how all of this is perceived. I mean, you may perceive this as like, Oh, the, the news is dark and you know, there's a lot of people out there and and right around us who say the news is false, you know, and they they honestly and sincerely believe that. And there's just such a divide on this that, I mean, clearly he's playing to that segment with this. And he's got to be, if he's going to get elected as governor of New York, he's got to do it without people who believe like you and I that, you know, what happened on January 6th was as you characterized it, that how do you get, you know, the news about President, former President Trump uh, is dark and getting worse. You know, he's he's got to get elected without people who think the way you're you're what you're expressing and what what I believe. And you can be elected governor of the state of New York. He's I guess that's his gamble. I, you know, seems like a big political risk for him. You know, on the face of it, but he's, you know, he's been successful in the past. And in this district, you know, the first congressional district, it has tended to lean Republican um, quite a bit, even in presidential elections, it's it's leaned Republican. But the but the idea that he is going to with the positions that he's taking, that he's going to win a blue state is um, that seems like a risky proposition. So you wonder what you know, I guess it's a litmus test for for yeah. where New York stands in general. Um, but also you wonder what maybe the end game is for him. Where does he see his, you know, political future going if if the governorship isn't? And one in of the great frustrations, Joe, out here is um, all the newspapers. I think I can speak for everybody, our inability to really communicate directly with him. I mean, mm-hmm. I can get I can get some responses from his press aide, Jacob who's been, you know, very polite and very nice with me, but like we can't go beyond just, hi, how are you? Um, or I'll get you a statement, but can we ask him what we, ne- what we know now about January 6th, what does it say about his decision that day to disqualify the Electoral College in two states? I think we it's- know what happened that day. We know that the investigation and where it's going. Does he now regret that? I think we have to emphasize this again. Um, and we've said it, I think, every time that comes up. But Congressman Zeldin has never spoken to any local media outlet to discuss 
is thinking about January 6th after it happened. It's he has issued a few boilerplate statements. And by the way, that's all we get now from uh, Congressman Zeldin's office, which is I'll get you a statement. We have no idea who's writing those statements. We don't we we I don't I don't want to speak for everybody, but I, I we have not spoken to Congressman Zeldin personally. Since, no, we haven't either, John. Um, he will not answer questions about it. And I think that's something that we just need to underscore again. That's remarkable that that I think you're right, Denise, that there is a perception out there among different voters that see January 6th differently. But I think it's it's just a basic thing to ask for an explanation from Congressman Zeldin, and we've never gotten one. The, the other point I want to make too, Steve, is can he win in a blue, uh, a blue state? Um, I think that's that's a discussion, but I don't want to sound cynical, but maybe the goal isn't to win uh, the, the governorship, but just to attain a higher level of, of visibility at the national level. And he may have some other plans. I mean, his political plans. I think Lee Zeldin is a very ambitious man. And I think I think um, if he can if he can really build a, a deeper commitment from that base, as small as it is, and I do think it's a fairly small base, the Trump base. But if he can if he can really get his bona fides with that base, uh, he can parlay that into a lot of different things, even if he loses this race. Yeah. Yeah. It seems to me like he must have national political ambitions and the positions that he's staking out as part of ever since January 6th and as part of his uh, run for governor sort of helped to cement his support in a Republican base that is also very pro-Trump. I mean, I think Donald Trump has made it fairly clear that he has an interest in running again in 2024. He's also said just recently that Mike Pence will not be his running mate. I don't think it's out of the question to put Lee Zeldin's name sort of in the large group of people who might be thinking that they're at least, an, and, and someone had mentioned before we went on the air, um, Lee Zeldin's making a trip to Florida uh, coming up, right? Yeah, I think I read in Newsday that he's headed to Mar-a-Lago for a big fundraiser for his um, governor camp governorship campaign. So he, I think also that Trump has not come out and supported his campaign, but it seems quite likely given how supportive Lee Zeldin was of Trump throughout. He was really one of his most steadfast allies through even his most challenging times when other people abandoned him or tried to put him at arm's length, Zeldin continued to support most of those policies. And that's, and that's why, uh, you know, Zeldin, like so many other Republican politicians, was not likely to take any position that's going to alienate Donald Trump. That's just, you know, and, and Donald Trump's base in the Republican Party, okay, is very, very, very strong. Don't, don't let, yeah. even, in, even in Suffolk County, which you think, might be blue, uh, you know, I, I'm not sure, but it's very strong in the Republican Party um, there. And, uh, you know, I, I, before we went on, uh, I, I think it was you, Steve, who was saying, you know, well, if he can win all of up, upstate and uh, Nassau and Suffolk County um, and pick off some votes in New York City, uh, you know, Staten Island, most notably, I would say, uh, you know, he's he stands a chance to uh, win the state house. Um, I, I don't I don't think it's I've always said this. I do not think it's beyond the pale at all. And I think, yes, he's a very ambitious um, politician. I mean, he ran for Congress when he was 20. I don't know. I forget how old, but it's just out of law school. A midterm yeah, race that where you could have a lot more partisan vote turnout um, for this midterm as well. And I talk, in talking to some centrist Republicans out here uh, who are not his fans, they all say every one of them unanimously says he is positioned to win. So they see him winning. Um, if he doesn't and the House turns over in the fall, becomes Republican again, McCarthy becomes the speaker, uh, Donald Trump avoids legal hassles and somehow runs again. I think your point, Joe, that that uh, Lee would be very much at the front of the pack for some sort of role in that. 
um, looms large. I don't think he even has to win. I just think he has to show well in the race. And I think everything you say, Steve, suggests that that's going to happen. So I, I think he's all in um, with uh, with the Trump uh, with the Trump agenda, and he's been fighting the uh, culture wars. Uh, more fervently in the last few months too. So that's something to keep an eye on. This is Behind the Headlines on WLIWFM. I'm Joe Shaw from the Express News Group. Uh, my panelists today are Steve Wick from the Times Review Media Group, Denise Civiletti from Riverhead Local, and Carissa Katz from the East Hampton Star. So I want to hit a, a couple of topics real quickly. Denise, um, there's, as part of the master plan update that's taking place in Riverhead right now, there was a conversation with some traffic consultants uh, this past week, and they have big plans for Sound Avenue. Is that right? They're, they're proposing something pretty significant. Well, I mean, they, they made some recommendations or they talk, discuss recommendations that um, kind of went over like a lead balloon, I think, um, <clears throat> and, and, you know, with every, everybody that heard them, uh, and mainly to uh, widen the paved area of Sound Avenue because the town already has a 66-foot wide uh, uh, right-of-way and to widen the paved area and create a center lane for uh, turning vehicles um, and, um, you know, make, make Sound Avenue, which is a designated historic corridor uh, since 1974, uh, but to make that a, a three-lane road um, and also create, um, create a center lane and also bike lanes on both sides of, of the road because the town uh, actually designated Sound Avenue as a bike as a bike lane, which um, is, I've always thought was kind of hilarious because there, there's, it's like, here, go kill yourself right on this road. Um, there's, there's, no, there's no shoulders even in parts of it. But. Yeah. So I that's mean, a, the idea that, that, sent, that even then someone would suggest that a very historic corridor that was once a really rural road as, as recently as 20 years ago, I mean, people didn't use that road. Um, and the historic farms along it, the idea that someone would just start digging it up and adding lanes to it, like it's Route 58, I, that is just beyond me. I don't know where we're going on the North Fork if people have ideas like that. Yeah, yeah it's uh, and I, you know, again, I, I, I think it's fair to say it went over like a lead balloon. I don't think anybody on the town board, certainly nobody uh, vocalized the, their the thought that that was a good idea anyway. But uh, as we've learned in Riverhead, you just never know. <laughs> a lot of lot of planning conversations taking place on the East End right now. Uh, a lot of communities are looking to update master plans. I know Southampton Village is doing that as well. Um, these plans, I, I've, I've said they're both really important and not at all important because I think it's they set a blueprint, but it's all about whether the towns and villages follow them anyway. And, and, but it's interesting to me that, that it's a chance to have these conversations about ideas that you can sort of propose and discard or, or maybe they get a little bit of traction at some point. Um, doesn't sound like that one's going to from the, sound, from the sound of the reaction you got. Yeah. And, and I, you know, I mean, the, the reality is that there is, a, that Sound Avenue is a terrible mess when it comes to traffic. And it's a terrible mess for people trying to, you know, drive on it but also for emergency vehicles trying to uh, traverse it to respond to calls. I mean, you know, and that's a very, very real concern. So clearly something needs to be done, but um, what that might be, I don't think anybody has any agreement on, at least certainly not yet. Um, Interesting stuff. Chris, I wanted to talk uh, real quick about a story that we had on Wednesday about Spring Farm uh, in Sag Harbor, which is, a game farm that's been in operation. They, they are a private game farm. They raise pheasants and mallard ducks uh, on the property. I think it's a big property, right? I think it's like 12 acres, something like that. I think it's even larger than that. I think your story said it's like 125 acres. Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm misremembering that. But it's a much bigger property and it, it's actually been preserved uh, by the Community Preservation Fund as open space, but it's used as sort of a private hunting reserve, but they raise pheasants and, and mallards on the property. And they uh, were hit with avian bird flu. And apparently, you know, one of the things the farm does is attract uh, migrating birds to the site as well. And it sounds like uh, the uh, state officials believe that it was wild birds 
that have spread the avian flu to their population. But the USDA actually was at the site this week and they had to euthanize thousands of birds at the site. And I think the future, it's, it's important to point out that um, Spring Farm has been there since I believe 1940. Uh, it's this has been something that, that it's a something of a tradition uh, on, on the East End as far as that. Property. Yeah, I was interested to read that in the paper because you also wonder what's the I've I've seen news of this happening at places all over the country where they've had to go in and euthanize birds who've been infected with avian flu. And I'm interested if it's been detected at a game farm, which obviously has a slightly different role than, say, a poultry farm. But what I wonder how the local poultry farmers might be looking at something like that and whether it's giving them a bit of trepidation yeah. having that so close. I mean, it's in some parts of the country, it's really starting to become a widespread problem. And it does jump to the domestic poultry population pretty easily. And there's even some conversation at the state level now warning, you know, a lot of folks in this area have chickens in their backyard uh, who are susceptible to this avian flu and they want people to be very attentive uh, to keep an eye out for it. Uh, this has, I mean, the last time we had a major avian flu outbreak, it, it ended up affecting the supply of poultry and prices went, of chicken went significantly up. It's, it's, it's not a small thing and, and uh, it's hitting us here uh, on the East End as well. That was uh, sort of the flare up of it. Um, I also wanted to talk with you, Carissa, about a story you did, um, which I thought was really interesting about um, food entrepreneurs and how the pandemic may have actually encouraged some of this, right? That it's that one of the, one of the things that's happened because of the pandemic is people found out there are new ways that they can make a living and, and sometimes they can follow their passion to do that. Right. I've seen this story played out in different forms a number of times in different articles we've had in the paper about people who had a side gig producing, maybe make baking bread and decided when the pandemic hit, they're going to take it to a different level. So the story I did this week with a young woman um, Alea Huey, who has Rena's Dream Patties, she makes Jamaican patties, and um, she had been she had been recipe testing before the pandemic, and she had been she had launched her brand, but it hadn't really taken off too much. She hadn't had the time and to devote to it and turn it into something. So when the pandemic hit, like so many other food entrepreneurs, she decided that she would put more put more time into this project that had been largely a passion project. So she connected with an interesting facility, the Stony Brook University Food Business Incubator in Calverton, which I'm sure um, our North Fork uh, panelists know about. And through them, she got some advice on how to market and scale up her production. And has now she's selling at the Riverhead Mark market, the indoor farmers market, she's selling it, she'll be starting this weekend again at the East Hampton farmers market, Springs farmers market, she has her patties in a couple of shops. It's still for her a side gig, but it's it's a nice story. And one that I think we've seen a lot of people for her, she said the pandemic actually inspired her to get serious about it, as opposed to sort of putting the brakes on this effort that she had begun already. And what I like about her particular story is that I remember when her grandmother had her grandmother, Rena, that um, for whom the Patty company is named, she had Jamaican, Jamaican specialties on North Main Street in East Hampton. She ran it for about three years and then she passed away. And Alea worked alongside her during that time, not cooking because she said she never really had an interest in cooking, but just helping her run the shop and was really sort of a vital part of running that shop, which I personally loved because I love Jamaican food. And um, when her grandmother passed away, she tried, I think, to keep it going, but wasn't able to. So she she just was thinking all these years, how could I do something to kind of honor that memory that my grand my grandmother's memory continue that tradition. And she started experimenting with patty recipes and, and then launched her company. So it's a nice little backstory too. Such a great little story. And, and, you know, you don't have to look far to find inspiration. Um, I'm thinking of the story of Kathleen King, who started 
you know, uh, what, I think it was 20 years ago, at least. Um, so I, I, I actually, I'm not going to get into dates here because I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> but she started baking cookies for her family's farm stand. And in a matter, you know, in, in her brief uh, adulthood, she has spun that into a multi-million dollar business that ended up being sold. And now Tate's cookies are everywhere all over the planet and constantly rated the best chocolate chip cookies on the planet. So, I mean, these small, I, I love that incubator. Uh, and, and I think it's had some real success stories. Um, certainly, maybe not at the Kathleen King level yet, but it shows that those things can happen, right? I mean, you get a good idea. If you have a good product, uh, the sky really is the limit. Yeah. And getting the support, I think, on the business level is really important. And that's one of the things that the incubator does. I had a chance to meet the the manager of it when I was up interviewing Alea. And she said that at the before the pandemic, there were 20 food businesses operating out of that incubator kitchen. And now there are some 73. So they got so much in so much interest when things people got laid off from jobs, they started shifting careers, trying to decide what do they really want to do and what do they feel passionate about. So that was uh, it was interesting to hear that. And it's a really cool facility. And what they do for small food businesses is great. It's, it's, a, it's a great facility. It really is. Uh, it really is. And it's the upside of the pandemic that the pandemic has taken such a toll on the food community on the East End. And we hear that all the time that, that restaurants uh, have had the challenges in finding staffing and everything else. Uh, this is, it's nice to, to see the flip side that, that, you know, the pandemic actually did inspire some people to get into the business and uh, maybe bring some, some, bring some new blood into it as well. The, yeah. the East End Food Institute, which runs the farmer's market now in Riverhead um, at the former Homeside Florist site, it's a, a, a large site there, and um, they are planning to build a, a kitchen and processing facility there as well and do some kind of like incubator type uh, uh, activity there for people, make it, make it available for people, which is really cool. Um, so uh, the pandemic, I think, yeah, it made it really hard for business as it was, but has just wrought a lot of changes for everyone in, in business. Uh, and, and I think that's one of them. And I'm always happy to see more food entrepreneurs because I love to eat. So. Absolutely. <laughs> Same here. Good and bad, but it's, it's nice to focus on the good side. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. And uh, we wish them all the best, no question. We are cool. for this week on Behind the Headlines. Uh, been a great conversation. I want to thank my guests, Carissa Katz from the East Hampton Star. Steve Witt from the Times Review Media Group, and Denise Civiletti from Riverhead Local. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Always good. Great. It was a great show. I think that definitely was true. Bill Sutton will be back next week posting Behind the Headlines here on WLIWFM. I'm Joe Shaw. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next week.